Hello and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast. Today, my guest is Rob Turley. He is co-founder and co-CEO of White Rabbit Intel. You're in for a bit of a treat. So Rob, quick introduction from you, please. For sure. Yep. So, uh, I mean, I guess you did the name introduction, so that's all set. But uh, what my company does is that we do advanced artificial intelligence for business to business. And when I say that, I mean, we look at a company's data. So a CRM, CDP, ERP, whatever the flavor is, we take all of that data from an export and we process it through our system. We create business intelligence and business process analytics insights. So think of it as like a shot of reality straight to the jugular. Everything of what your business is, what it stands for, where it's going in the reality of things, not what you want or what you think you want. It's not based on assumption. It is. So it's the real. So it's, it's what is and what will be. We extrapolate contact data, sales success data, transactional, and so on. And what we do with that is that we enrich and enhance it from thousands of GDPR compliant sources, meaning data privacy legal sources, right? International. And then we create an aggregate in the form of a target demographic profile. So to speed this up, think of it as the five to seven week market research campaigning process condensed in two minutes and 17 seconds of AI processing time. Then we create an ICP, so an ideal customer persona specific to each salesperson or seller in our system. And it is individualistic to that person. So looking at their unique selling style, their unique personality, their morals, their interests, their values, their traits, everything that makes up that person to do a deep dive to understand who they are and who they sell to. So giving that persona so that people know how to prospect properly to precisely who you fit with as a human being, not just your company. It goes way deeper than that. And as far as we know, we're the only company in the world in, B2B, in the B2B space that does psychographic analytics. Beyond that point, we used all of that data, the success data, and that new understanding by recognizing trillions of patterns to connect sellers to buyers that have the highest probability of having a personal engagement or being able to build a personal relationship with that person because sales is a people game. And um, giving a probability score of what is the probability that you will have that engagement with that person that will either lead to a sale, lead to a networking opportunity, or lead to something such as a referral. Because people do business with people that they like, that they trust, and that they can relate to. So using AI to put the people back into salespeople, if that makes sense. From there, we're able to predict the probability of opportunities to upsell current customers and calculate the risk of loss of current customers so that you can mitigate that risk and get in touch with people at the right time. So think of it as like cutting 90% of the fat out of the sales prospecting process, not getting in touch with the people who don't want to talk to you. Nobody likes unwarranted solicitations. Mitigate the noise in the market. We're making too much noise. Let's cut it out. Now we have the technology to do so. So let's get rid of it. It's really, I mean, honestly, everybody's fucking sick of it. So that's what we're doing is that we are leveling the playing field so that all businesses may the best man win or woman or whoever, right? <laughs> and um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we are giving the opportunity for an affordable, available, easily accessible, advanced artificial intelligence technology to all businesses to democratize AI. So it has that level of availability so that all small and medium-sized businesses have the opportunity and the bandwidth to be able to properly compete with their enterprise overlords. When I say enterprise overlords, I don't necessarily mean that enterprise companies are bad. They're actually really good and they could do a lot of progress for this world and awesome things. It's the ones that are stuck in their old ways and have very poisonous systems built into their own 
I guess, work and progress where it's counterintuitive and it really just floods everything else. So have the most innovative, effective people win because things need to change. So you must be pretty unpopular with a lot of marketing departments who depend on being able to have a massive budget to squander it on interrupted marketing that no one pays any attention to. How do they tend to respond when you go into companies? The marketing department, we help them because of that market research profile that we create, the target demographic profile, is that their just long drawn out, heavily laborious process has now been automated where they could do the same thing in minutes and start doing their job, building the campaigns and actually targeting who they should be targeting right off the bat. Where let's say we actually have in network marketing partners where we alleviate so much of their labor that it's a very powerful relationship where it's work with us so you can waste less time. And one of the biggest pain points for marketing companies is that ROI is pretty much non-existent until about that five to seven week period. So people end up churning and leaving them as a customer all pissed off because they literally haven't taken the time and spent the money yet to see the return. And that's not sustainable for companies who are not enterprises. If we were to look at the four most common questions that people ask you, about AI and data and how you can use it? What, what are the foremost common questions people ask? The foremost common questions, uh, I guess, number one would be, is this even real? They don't think something like this is possible. But guess what? If you didn't learn anything from Alice in Wonderland, anything is possible. And you should think of three impossible things before <laughs> breakfast, right? Because we thought flying was impossible, but look at the Wright brothers. People thought they were nuts. But guess what? It was done. It was considered impossible. It was done. Space travel, impossible. Now it's done. Getting below absolute zero Kelvin, it's been done. And we discovered a new state of a, a new state of existence as a super solid. That was done back in 20, 2012, I want to say, or 2013. Also getting faster than the speed of light. Oh, speed of light, you know, theory, relativity, all that stuff. Light only goes that fast, says Einstein, except if you bounce light or refract light through a prism, when you bend light, it's actually increasing in acceleration. So the speed of light is not the fastest speed. Faster than the speed of light is light getting bent. So that's also not true. So anything that is defined in this world is not defined. We just haven't found a way to define another way for it yet. So any absolutes are not absolute. I love your philosophy. So what other questions are people asking you? Another question, I guess they would say, how does it work? When they ask how, it, how does it work, Nobody wants to know how it works because if you actually start getting into that, you have lost them within the first 30 seconds. It's you're saying words. They understand the meaning of the words individually, but when they're strung together, they, they don't understand the meaning. <laughs> so it's when they ask how it works, what they're asking is, what will this do for me? How will this work for my company? Another question would be, how is this possible? Well, it's possible because we're able to see trillions of patterns in a nonlinear way. So it's really defined by mathematics. Being able to quantify qualified data once was not possible. There's some ways that we could do that now with certain things, but that's what we do is that uh, we're turning human decision-making and thinking into numbers, which can be done. It just hasn't been found out how to, how to do it yet. And that's what we do really. And it's, it's understanding that. Or they also ask, I guess for the fourth question, what will this do for my company? Uh, but how will, the, how will I see return on this? Or what benefit is this going to bring me? Well, it will bring you extreme efficiency. It, I mean, think about it this way. 
if you have a list of 10,000 contacts and you send it to a cold caller, what is that cold caller going to do? They're going to call every A to Z. Every single fucking person on the list, right? That's what they're going to do. That's the job. The job sucks. But in reality, 90% of those contacts are 99.99% likely to never want to speak to you. And it was an unwarranted solicitation. It was noise. About 750 of those contacts may want to talk to you, may not. 250 contacts absolutely would want to talk to you. And you have a very high probability of it ending up in a relationship or a sale. Can you tell me which or which? Well, no, you can't look through 10,000 contacts, be able to do that deep dive into who they are and what they do and what their companies and everything to figure that out. But that is something that we can do. Because I mean, if you look at it this way, we're looking at trillions of patterns, right? How long does it take to count to 1 trillion? If you were to count the 1 trillion, well, I can tell you uh, almost exactly 31,000 years. So if you're saying that you look at your data better than an AI does, that is a bold-faced lie. Because just to get to a trillion, and we're looking at about for a set of 1,000 records with uh, about 150 data points each when it's going through boosted trees and neural nets, 8.66 times 10 to the 94th. That is an inconceivable number. We don't even have a name for it. That's why it's annotated, right? So that is what I think it's like a trillion times a trillion. So it would take you literally, the earth would have been destroyed. Years squared. Yeah. So tell me, where did the inspiration for the concept come from? Interesting question. And uh, the game of Go. It's an ancient game. It's an ancient Chinese game, similar to chess in a lot of ways with the black and white squares and everything. But it's like a chessboard times 10 in size and there's different strategies to it. And the Go master, uh, what was it, Feng Wei, I think is his name. Uh, please do not check that because I, I, I don't really remember the name. But Google created an AI that no one has, he's undefeated. Nobody can defeat him. He's the best Go master there is. And he was completely annihilated by this Google AI that just used a, learning pro, a machine learning process to beat him. So from there, and also from working on other AI projects where it was just a nightmare to get the data together and just do all of it and understanding it at a fundamental level. Tell me this, what really pissed you off about the way most organizations are using and selling AI? What pisses me off the most is that people say that they're selling AI and it's not even AI. It's rudimentary statistical analyses at best. It's a disgrace. Also, these new, you know, new AI things that are getting released, it's just a copy and paste licensed version of whatever you know, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, IBM are selling, and it's just a little bit repurposed. So it's just constant retreading of the tire and selling it for millions and millions and millions of dollars a year. When realistically, build your own. We don't need tires anymore. We've had tires forever. We need to build flying cars. So that's what we're doing. And do not sell AI if it's not AI. If you think a bot, a responsive bot for your company, like you have a bot on your website and it has like smart answers and stuff. If that was sold to you as an AI, guess what? That was a bold-faced lie. It is not AI. It's a bot. It's simple nonsense. So what is AI? There are many different forms of it, but something that has predetermined answers is not AI. Something that's just doing an algorithm, like a regression model or something, or a stat model is not AI. AI is something that can make its decisions based off of an input that is not necessarily told what the output should be. It should have a purpose, but the purpose should be defined by the machine by learning from what the data says. So I like putting it this way. If you're telling an AI what to do, 
for example, Salesforce is Einstein. If you're telling it what to do, they, because that's people ask us all the time. Well, how do I tell it what to do? Well, you don't. That's the point. It tells you because it knows better. So if you, if you say, oh, I need it to do this, 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 and that, and I'm looking for this result, bias, 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 result is therefore garbage. So bias inputs for a super biased result that is going to be skewed, right? It can work in some instances because sometimes your bias assumptions are correct. But when it comes to AI, like AI that we build, it is input based on what's there, everything that makes your company what it is. And then it defines what the output should be based off of what was there, uh, looking at the efficient patterns, effective patterns, and then building out a data response or and predictions based off of what the best pathways are in reality to the data. So it's not what you're looking for. It's about what there is and what the best possible routes of what can be. What you're looking for is usually wrong, or what you want is something that it's not what you need. So being able to decipher the difference between those two is with AI, because it has a non-biased perspective on the data that's in there to quantify and create a solution that is going to be more efficient than a solution of just a, a guest method. So how can you make sure that the AI you build is unbiased? Uh, there's a lot of different things that you could do. You need to tell it to ignore some data, or you need to tell it that some things are weighted heavier than others and everything like that. But there is currently no perfect way to mitigate bias, because right now, all the data that's out there is data that was put there by human beings. So all data is pretty much inherently biased. It's just that how do you decipher what bias means for whatever you're processing? So there's no real answer to that. It's just that you do what you can to get there. But the way that a, a, a machine, if you're using unsupervised machine learning with deep learning processes, the way that it looks at the data is not with a certain idea in mind. It's processing it to find out what it stands for. So the data put in may be biased. So the data put out may be biased, but it's biased in the perspective where it's true. And that is something that will be, you know, over time, we'll be able to continue to, to improve on, of course. So tell me this, because I, I recently interviewed a lady called Amy Brown, who's the founder of a fabulous AI company called Authentics. And they take bi-directional conversational data from call centers and emails. And before they start processing the data through the AI, they have a team of diverse background uh, social scientists listen to the da uh, data or samples of the data so that they can recognize what needs to be listened for rather than just simply taking from one perspective. One of the things that I'm incredibly conscious of is that diverse teams are able to see the whole picture or a much broader range of the, bit of the full picture rather than if everyone is Ivy League or Oxbridge educated or they're all balding, fat, old uh, white men uh, whatever. Um, and you see this in so many instances where despite having maybe an ethnically diverse group, they've all come from a similar sort of educational background and so on. And I think diversity is really critically important in the economy as we go forward. If you don't understand the full picture, you will have a very blinkered perspective. And if you're feeding the AI with that bias right from the off, then chances are you're going to end up with terrible outcomes. In terms of 
how you're building diversity into your proposition. Are you doing anything around that? So um, when it comes to sales, it's, there's not, so when it comes to looking at that, like NLP or behavioral analytics in the sense that she's doing it, that's a bit different because it's language. When you're talking about sales data, company data and interactions, there's not, it's mostly metric based. So it's not bias unless they're lying about the numbers and their, their own data, which I'm sure the IRS would have a field day with that. Well, most people's uh, forecasts are just fictions anyway. Right, but it's looking at the bias in the sense, too, where we use it to our advantage in a way where each individual seller is looked at, who they are, what their lifestyle choices are, what they believe in, what their unique selling style is. But it's taking their habits, like their habituals, it's taking their opinions, it's taking their social interaction style and structure and it's matching them to people that have the most in common with them. So it's using the human bias and the human, the human uh, overall, like what makes you, you, to connect you to other people because it's understood that people buy from people and it's a people process. So it's processing it in a non-biased way, but understanding the fundamentals of those people to connect them where their biases would almost connect with one another, where you'll actually resonate with another person. So it's on, it's on a different spectrum of that. This is mind-blowing. Okay, um, tell me this. What are the three questions people should be asking you, but they're not? That they should be asking? There's a lot of questions that they, they should be asking. You can go beyond but three. <laughs> for sure. It's hard to even think of one. Uh, one thing they should be asking us is, how would this improve the way that I sell? And not from the perspective of like, oh yeah, is it, it's, it going to be easier? No, it's going to be easier, obviously. But in a much more granular term of that, how is this going to improve my selling and the sense of what is this going to help me achieve at a really deep level, at a personal level? How, what is this going to help me achieve? Not just, oh yeah, what's this going to do for my company? Yeah, great. I can answer that all day. But what is this going to do for you as an individual? And another question would be, what does someone's psychography mixed with their location and everything else in there have anything to do with my ability to sell to, to people? Well, if they're qualified, they're qualified. No, if they're qualified, they're qualified for your company to sell to. But if you put the wrong salesperson on the right decision maker, you've lost that sale before even speaking to them. Because if you put an aggressive salesperson, which are great for what they do for the right people, onto a relationship builder decision maker, that sales lost. When, you know, Carrie over here, she's a relationship builder salesperson. If you just gave that hot lead to Carrie, you'd be doing business right now. So it's mitigating that risk. Like what does, what does it all mean to me as a salesperson? And what does it mean to how we do business with other people? Those are two good questions. Can I just make an observation there? If you're using that, then from a team selling perspective, particularly an enterprise, can make sure that you've got the right people on your team speaking to the right people on the buyer's team or on the partner's side. But what I'm also curious about is how it can help you in make informed decisions about the type of people you need to recruit for your team. Uh, are you seeing any uh, application of that? So that's something we're actually developing out. Uh, we're going to move into the HR perspective of things. 
as well as the recruiting side of things. Because with the way that we process data, we would be able to do things such as, are they a good culture fit? Because that's what matters most. You can have all the skills in the world, but guess what? Skills can be learned. Personality cannot be learned. It is what it is. And putting the wrong people together with the personalities that they have, you'll see a lot of inefficiencies or you'll see a lot of people butting heads because it's just not the right mix of people. So being able to find out what that is and uh, matching the right team members together, because you might have someone who's underperforming big time, but you'll find out that they should just be on a different team and they'll overperform with different people. And then looking at it from that HR perspective, again, would be the right team building once people are hired, understanding the culture that they come from, understanding the way that they think, the personality traits, everything like that, and then connecting them to work with other people on that team so they can work the most efficiently and being able to weed out the poisonous management. So seeing, doesn't matter who's a team player or who works well together, but this manager just sucks. Sucks. Awful, terrible human being, puts everybody down, puts himself first. He's not trying to train people and to lead people to become better than him. He's keeping them down so he can hold his position. Get rid of him. It's opposite of effective. Sandler did a research study at the beginning of this year and identified that only 6% of sales managers worldwide are fit for purpose. Honestly, I'm amazed it was that high. But again, often that's down to the wrong type of people being put into management. Often it's the top performer that's being put into management. And that's a double whammy because you lose a top performing salesperson and you gain a shit manager. So you end up then creating turnover in your sales team. And if you're, if you're able to apply this in the context of exploring how teams are performing and the fit and psychographics, then presumably what that will also enable you to do is do predictive hiring. And when you have teams, then very rapidly pinpoint the areas that need coaching. Have you been able to use the technology in order to identify coaching requirements? So that's something that within the next year, we're innovating on the recruiting and the HR side of things. Right now, it's for sales, marketing, customer success, operations and management with where it really, those are the five buckets that it really uh, helps with. But then it's, it's not all that difficult for us to actually move into those directions. We just need to get there. It's on the roadmap. It's just not a now thing. It's a later thing. But yeah, it's, it's more than possible and it's very doable. It's not all that difficult either. And I would agree with you with the, with the, I'd like to ask you this is what does performance have anything to do with the ability to lead? Well, Project Oxygen that Google ran, the ability to do the job came eighth in the ranking. There are a whole slew of other uh, factors that matter more. But in order to be a good manager, you actually have to be motivated and derive satisfaction from helping other people meet their potential. You need to be an and, empathic. Exactly. Uh, you need to be empathic. Um, you need to have compassion. You need to love your people without getting overly fluffy and hippie on this. But the other thing that we've seen is that often it's not the top performer, but it's the, uh, the rep who manages to get the most account penetration. So going deep and wide within an account who makes the better manager because they have empathy, they pay attention, they listen well, they, they question well. I would agree. I would agree. Social aptitude has everything to do with being a good leader or a good manager. You need to be able to talk to people. If you're all about the work and just making the money, you're probably not going to lead people that well because you're not trying to help them. You're trying to help yourself. Absolutely. And people who are motivated by money 
genuinely motivated by money and sales tend to be rather soulless bastards. And they're not necessarily the ones that you want because what they're focused on is the transaction. They're not focused on creating lifetime customer relationships. And so I'd like to take this to another level as well. Are you doing anything around using this in the context of the channel? Helping vendors identify through the analytics which companies would make good channel partners and which salespeople within those partners are going to be a very natural fit for the customer base that you're targeting based on your initial analytics. So that would depend. It depends on what data they have available to process through if they have enough data to uh, see what success on that would look like. So the data in equals the data out, right? If they don't have the data on it, there's no way to just, you know, pull it out of thin air because, you know, a lot of people think, oh, what you do is like magic. Well, no, it's not. If the data is not there, it's not there. There's no way to, to put it there if it's not there, right? So realistically, the, the way you might be able to apply this is with existing partners rather than for partner recruitment. Right, right. So it would be with your partner successes, looking at all of that data, at processing it through. And then the way that it would work, I mean, in our system, the way that it would work is that you would separate it as a different product or service. We have all that separated because you cannot do a full just idea of, oh, yeah, this is every, but this is our demographic or this is our target. When you're selling multiple things, let's say, you know, you're selling um, car insurance and then you're selling life insurance and then you're also selling supplemental Medicaid. You can't just lump that all into, oh, yeah, this is our best target. That is absolutely untrue and it doesn't work that way in any world. I mean, even if you're selling software where, oh, yeah, we're selling a MarTech solution or, oh, we're selling a sales tech solution. Yeah, we we target, uh, you know, tech companies that are doing 40 million plus ARR and, you know, they're in... Fresno, California, doing which whatever thing, that doesn't mean anything. And the fact that they're not segmenting their markets by the product is, is, a, is a huge failure. It's a huge failure. So if you were to look for partners, that pretty much is just a different product slash service. A partnership is just another sale. It's just a really complicated one. Okay. So tell me this, what's the future of AI in your mind? The future of AI is sentience which that scares the shit out of people. You can kind of control that too. But the future of AI is building it so that it can most efficiently and effectively do the things for us that are menial tasks or laborious so that we can focus on the things that are intuitive, the things that are going to push us forward, creativity, new technologies, developing new processes and stuff like that. Because what humans are good at, it's intuition. And they're good at inventing and being creative and pushing things to the next level and having hope, having, you know, just all of those different factors that make up what makes us human. We should stick to that because machines are really good at doing what? Crunching numbers. That's what they're for. They're number crunchers. People are not built, human beings are not built to just sit in an Excel spreadsheet 12 hours a day and just losing their minds and clawing their eyes out doing this. Sure, yo, you may love the job and you may like it, but you could be doing something so much more exciting and important where you're trying to create new ways for data to be processed or to be looked at while all those other tasks are just getting done. Something that takes you eight hours where you want to blow your brains out, right? That you can complete in less than 10 seconds with AI and have perfect outcome. Why would you not do that? And that you can have these people that are focusing on all this specialize in something that will push us as a species forward further, faster, and for more efficiency and for just better outcomes for everybody. 
AI will take out all those laborious tasks and taking those out will allow us to actually do things that matter. It's not about the perpetual state of survival anymore. It's about the progressive state of doing more, doing better, going further. So it's about growth. It's not about survival. Because right now, companies are all about survival, not just because of the whole COVID thing that's going on and all that. It's always been that way. And with how, I mean, enterprises and just B2B companies in general, how conservative they are with the way that they do things. Oh, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. We've been doing it this way for years. So we're going to continue to do it. That's not going to fly anymore. Most are playing not to lose rather than to win. And, Precisely. And I, no I risk, know, no reward, my man. I don't know if you've read Safi Bakal's book, Loon Shots. He uh, writes about how companies start out innovative and creative and after a while, they grow to a point where it's more in the interests of middle and senior management to shoot down ideas. And then they become more bureaucratic, more politicized. And I think one of the things I'm most excited about uh, listening to you is that you're trying to break that mold. Now, The, I, the I, more heads there are in a boardroom to make a decision the less effective the decision is that's made and the longer amount of time that it takes and the more discrepancies there are. The more heads there are, the less it gets. But there's a limit to that. Five to seven people thinking at one time is very effective. If you put 15 people in a room, nothing's going to get decided. It's just simple psychology behind it. And with the decisions that are made based on numerics, numbers, growth, things like that, just uh, uh, stats and, and metric, yeah, stats and metrics, that should be decided by a machine because all it does is crunch numbers and it will give you the actual output and then be able to just, you know, put a nice line on a graph for you showing what the projections are going to be rather than having someone try to figure that out. Just have it figured out for you. Why do you have a whole division doing that? That's such a waste of money and time. One of the observations that I've read about is that only about 20% of the data contained in CRM systems is actually accurate and worthwhile. And we see so many companies making decisions of strategic importance on the basis of 80% flawed data. How do you work past that with your AI, given that you are sucking data out of CRM? I know that you're taking multiple data sources, but I'm curious, you know, how do you make sure that, that the crap that's in, uh, inherent within most CRM, because... Uh, most CRM systems have been put in place as an audit tool, not for the original intent of uh, CRM, which is to help sell, salespeople sell more people, sell more products to more and services to more people for more money more frequently. So how do you manage to eliminate that intrinsic bias of shit data? Oh, yeah, for sure. So usually about, uh, it's, it's a really high percentage, Can't uh, the numbers at the tip of my tongue, can't remember, but... A, a lot of uh, CRMs, uh, you know, fill out fields are not complete. Most of them, the majority. Yeah. Uh, when it comes to the crap data, we do very extensive data pools. And if the data that they have in their system, unless it's tied directly to their company where it's private data to that company, there's nowhere else you can get that. It's going to be co as correct as their company has their books, right? So all of that stuff, that's how we look at business intelligence right? It's everything that has to do with that company specifically, what makes them tick, what numbers they have, everything. But when it comes to the data on the people, if it's incorrect, our system uh, does a data, extensive data pools. And if we get data that's different, because ours is pulled upon request from sources that are updating continuously. So if it's old data, 
our system's able to recognize that and it throws theirs out. It's like, no, this is crap. And it replaces it with the correct. And if there is no correct correction data for it and it's crap, then it's deleted. And our system actually does, does the logic behind, is this just a correlation or is this a causation? So think about it that way. It's not just, oh, we sell to 85% men. That means we need to target men. That could be complete bullshit. You sell to 85% men because 85% of the people that you're supposed to be targeting in the market that you're targeting hold that title or hold that position that you're selling to and 15% are women. The fact that you're only targeting men is actually a huge crutch in the system. It's like, throw, it's like throwing a wrench in the system because realistically, from a causative standpoint, based on the ratio of the people who hold that position or in that position that you're selling to that is the most efficient ideal persona, you have a 50-50 chance of selling to a man or a woman. The gender does not matter. It just looks like it does. So it's making assumptions and focusing on the wrong things when it could be something such as, it could be something such as if they went to this high school in Westchester, New York, and then went to Arizona University and now work in a tech field up in, in Wisconsin, those are the best possible targets where that is what's truly relevant. Like, for example, we process data for a roofing contracting company, right? They do uh, commercial uh, roof contracting, stuff like that. They were trying their darndest to find out who the decision maker is that they need to be targeting. They hired data scientists for it. They just couldn't make sense of any of it. We ran it through our system. And in about two minutes, we discovered it's not even about a decision maker at all. Decision maker has nothing to do with it. What it has to do with is the geolocation, the materials the building was made of, and what direction the building was facing and how long it's been there. So instead of finding, oh, who's the person we need to sell to, it's well, it needs to be buildings that are in Wisconsin's 36th congressional district that are made out of concrete and steel construction over the square footage size of 20,000 feet that have been in existence for 20 plus years that are on a northbound street facing west. Sounded crazy. We didn't even believe it. But guess what? It was exactly right. Wow. They were 40% more likely. They had 40% more success in their sales by targeting just that. That's amazing. I guess there was a bottle of champagne drunk that night. <laughs> no, it was more like, um, it was more like, whoa. Like, yeah, I don't know. It was just like, like a. <laughs> so if you're able to get to that granular level, how do you see companies misusing this? And what are you doing in order to prevent them from doing that? As if this gets um, the wrong hands. Misusing it? I mean, how are you going to misuse it? We've put so many different things in there that you cannot miss. If you put in, uh, we don't work in the B2C space. If you put in B2C data, it just throws it out. It, it's error, throws it out. So you can't. And uh, as far as if you want your salespeople not to focus on a target demographic profile, which is what your marketing team needs to focus on, there's a permission. Literally shut it off for those users so they're not tempted to try to prospect based on the overall demographic and not their ideal customer persona because they should not be prospecting for that. You shut it off, they can't see it. If you don't want your company metrics, the overall business intelligence, business process analytics dashboard to show for people who are lower level employees or not in uh, like a VP position, you shut it off. You don't show them that. A way that it can be misused though is that, I mean, 
we have uh, things in our, uh, you know, user legal agreement that it's not used for any anything pornographic. It's not used for gambling. Uh, we do not work with companies that sell weapons or firearms or are arms dealers in any way. We have the restrictions on any federal use, anything like that. It cannot be taken by them. Literally all of that stuff. So if it's used for wrong, that is a hefty litigation lawsuit. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's go to the other uh, bugbear that both of us um, have a bit of a, I'm trying to not use the word hard on for, so I'll delete <laughs> that. <laughs> Venture capital and private equity. If we look at those kind of people operating in the tech space, I have a real issue with a whole model that drives businesses to produce the wrong kind of output, focus on the wrong end of the problem. What's your mission when it comes to helping companies not get trapped uh, in that private equity venture capital swamp? Well, that's more of like a personal thing, but uh, it's just, it's been beat into the skulls of all the people, including like accelerator programs. You need venture capital to start a company and to be successful, or you need an angel investor. That is absolutely untrue. I mean, we didn't have one. And people are shocked by that because wait, wait, you, we, you know, speak to other uh, AI startups. Oh, we needed $20 million for, for the, uh, the licensing of the AI. Like, uh, how, do you, how do you afford that licensing? It's like, well, we build it proprietary. And they go, wait, what? You can build that shit? It's like, yeah, what are you even doing? Like, <laughs> you're not an AI company. You're just licensing something and tweaking it and then selling it for millions. But uh, that's the thing is you don't need venture capital. The truth is behind it, they get preferred shares, which is worth more than founding shares. So they have more say in the company than you do. If you don't want to be the person running your company anymore, they have more say over you do. They're immediately on the board most of the time. And uh, the decision decisions that they ultimately make or tell you to do is the direction that you're going to go. You owe them such a debt that you can, sometimes you're stuck in a position of giving them more equity as payment. And then they just take, 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 take until you have nothing left. And uh, the, the goal is too, is that you cannot really get this investment unless they ask you, what's your exit strategy? Why do you need an exit strategy? What if you want to actually start a business and build an empire? Why do you have to exit in three to four years? Why do you have to sell it? Why? Because they just want a fat paycheck in their hands and then just move on to the next one. They don't care about you or your company. They just care about the money that it's going to line their pockets. That's that's the reality behind it. Okay. So given that we understand that, and we're both in violent agreement here, using the type of technology that, or your technology, um, what sort of results are you able to point to with your clients uh, in terms of being able to generate revenues and profitable revenues organically so that they don't need to go for funding? Or if they ever do have to go for funding, then it's on their terms and they don't have to sell their soul to Satan. Right. So the, the point behind what we do, let's say it's a small business and they're using our platform. We offer our lowest spectrum thing for just, just entrance into it, unlimited business intelligence, business process analytics, along with 50 customers, in-depth insights deep and 50 prospect matches monthly recurring all together for 50 bucks. It costs a steak dinner. If you have a small business that's failing and you're really having a hard time, you can afford $50 to pull yourself out of the tar pit. We're trying to do the world a favor. So it's 
knowing what's actually happening, what your metrics really say, because often they can't hire a, a business analyst or a business process improvement consultant or you know whatever else, because it's going to cost tens of thousands of dollars, if not hundreds of thousands, to find out where the pain points are, to know what's actually going on. And most people don't even know what's happening in their company, even successful companies. They just don't have the resources or the time or don't want to put in the effort or don't even know how to find out what's actually going on, to see the truth behind their company. So it's about that truth. So you can see what's happening, understand where your profits are coming from, understand where your pain points are, understand where you need to be going, not where you want to go or, you're, you, you know, you know, just rolling in the shit of just, oh, no, what are we going to do? This is what's happening. This is where it's at. This is where you need to go. And then getting people in touch with the right people, because a 2% success rate on cold outreach is disgusting. If you chop out 90% of the fat, then that 2% success rate immediately, since 90% of the garbage is out, is now at 20%. And it's just cutting out the fat and understanding your company, understanding who you sell to, and just identifying what you need to do based on what it, your data says, what's there, what's happening, where do I need to go, who's actually selling, like wh- who should be selling to these people, Are our sales team, is our sales team actually effective? Are we even focusing on the right metrics? Do we have data that's missing? Most of those questions cannot be answered until you have an AI do a full analysis of it, and it's all put in front of you right there. There's no reason to get all of those assets and those resources because it's, it's, it could just be processed instantly. Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Have you ever been blindsided whilst you've been running White Rabbit? Fine, blindsided. There's a lot of different ways you can... Something from left field just whacked you on the side of the head. You weren't expecting it, and it was a valuable lesson from failure. Oh yeah, do uh, don't uh, rely on a strategic partnership for when you're really early stage. That is going to bring in most of the money that you would plan on have uh, had using for like the future and where things were headed. And because until there's ink on that paper, everything was discussed, went through all the attorneys, everything was good to go, all that stuff was done, everything was uh, hunky dory, and it was just a bit of time until it was supposed to happen, and then you know just taken away from you, gone. It's just, oh, yeah, we decided not to do this out of nowhere the day before the signature. And then once you lose that, you can lose a lot of hope. But the way that we are, we're just like, you know, everything happens for a reason. And now that we look back at it, if we actually followed through with that, we would not be in the place we are now. We're in a better position. So take everything as a positive experience and learn from it. It's not the end of the world. And also just don't put put all your eggs in one basket and don't rely on others. If you ever put yourself in a position where a company that you work with or a partner that you're currently working with is the reason you're in business, a heavy reliance, if you cannot self-sustain, your company will fail. Absolutely. And the rule of thumb is no more than 12% of any of your business being stuck with uh, one partner or one customer. If it's more than one eighth, then they pose an existential risk. Uh, to your uh, future. So mm-hmm. uh, absolutely get out there, hustle, and make sure that you've got your broadening your or spreading your risk. Yes. Uh, Rob, and this- never, ever sign an exclusivity agreement because you just yeah. destroyed your entire opportunity of working with anything else in that industry. Uh, absolutely. Rob, this has been really, really exciting. And I hope that we can do it again. Oh, for sure. More than happy to. Excellent. Okay, so if you had a golden ticket, and I was going to say 23, but um, looking at when you graduated, my suspicion is that wasn't that long ago. So if you had a golden ticket and you could offer one bit of choice advice and whisper it in your ear before you set this business up, what would that be? 
golden ticket opportunity. Hmm. If I were to whisper it in my ear, let the market tell you where your market is. That's what. It's not what you want to sell to, who you want to sell to. It's not, it, it's listen to the, every decision that we've made in our company was based off of what people have asked for or what the market needs. And if I knew that going into it, it would have been a much smoother transition from the, everything's on fire, starting a company panic in the beginning. That would have been the biggest thing is that don't let anything get to you and everything, you know, let the market speak to you and listen to the market. It's not about what you want. Again, like our technology even proves that it's not about what you want. It's about what is and where you're headed. And uh, another thing would be, it's not about the how everybody worries about the, Oh, how are we going to do this? How are we going to do that? The how is irrelevant and the how is constantly changing. It's a Delta. There's no way to define the how the how is constantly like if, if some, if another, you know, uh, uh, you know, hoop to jump through comes up, or if something happens, the how has now changed. Stop worrying about the how. It's the yes, this is what we're doing, and we're going to get there. And this is where you're going. And just knowing this is where you're headed, keeping that goal in mind and having that BHAG that you're following the entire time, because the how will keep changing no matter how the how, ch- no matter how the how changes. As long as you're resonating with your goal and your team is, it will always meet because the how is irrelevant. You will get there if you believe you will. Okay. I love your optimism. Being a jaded old fart, I've had to learn how that's the case again from my youth because I was full of piss and vinegar when I was young and then went through 35 years. But I've found that spark again. Okay. What what are you watching, reading, listening to at the moment that you really rate? Well, watching, reading, listening to. So I always recommend this book, Psycho-Cybernetics is awesome. It helps you build yourself. Maxwell Maltz. Yeah, Maxwell Maltz. So Psycho-Cybernetics, I should have. And also, the favorite of pretty much the entire world is Think and Grow Rich. It's the entire dichotomy of, um, uh, what's it called? It's by Napoleon Hill, and it's the dichotomy of, um, oh, who's the guy? Carnegie. The way that Carnegie made his money. So this guy studied Carnegie and all of his processes, interviewed him and like other people. And it's pretty much the science behind getting rich, which sounds like the craziest, stupidest thing in the world. But this book has been used by nearly everybody who's had massive success and has followed it ever since the 1930s. Have you read Napoleon Hill's Outwitting the Devil? Oh, no, that one's on the list, though. Okay, that's well worth a read. Again, fascinating because it's a hypothetical conversation between. Hill and the devil after uh, he'd experienced massive loss and was actually, his life was at risk uh, because he'd managed to piss off some gangsters. And mm. it's the story of, of, or the conversation about how human beings manage to undermine themselves by drifting away from their purpose. Really fascinating read. Right. It's like, yeah. if, if you think it, you could do it because your belief is everything. The way I look at it is that there are, this this my firm belief is that there are two truths in this world. There's I can and I can't. They're both true. But what defines it as true is which one do you believe? If you can't do it, you can't do it. And you never will do it because you believe that you can't. Therefore, you won't. If you can do it and you believe you could do it, sure you can. Again, it's not about the how. The how is irrelevant. But you can. You believe you can. You can and you will do it because you believe you can. You will find the way. But finding the way is irrelevant. There are steps that you take to get there, but those steps will define themselves before you as you move forward, since it's constantly changing. Okay, so 
tough question. What what are you struggling with? What are you wrestling with at the moment? It's you know getting the word out there of what we're doing that we're trying to change the world and it's actually affordable. It's affordable and usable and available to everybody. But not just that. It's educating people of what it is that we do and how it will help them because it is a new cutting edge technology. There are some lookalike companies like us out there that, but they're not doing what we're doing. I know that sounds like the classic, oh yeah, new company. Yeah, they're doing something so, so individualistic and blah, 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 blah. No, no, no. It's, there, as far as I know, there's not another company in the world doing psychographic analytics at a B2B level. And no companies or softwares that offer, um, what, what is it, personality tests, that, that is not psychographic analytics. That is literally just a Myers-Briggs. And then they just process it. And then they do some like team building and stuff, super effective for that. But then using it in the outbound sales method and for the company dichotomy method. Um, nobody's using that. Um, and, and the type of math that we use is far more complex. This is a nonlinear world. Why is everybody calculating, calculating everything lit with a linear mathematic approach? It's nonlinear. Everything's nonlinear. Why are we using linear math? That's why it's all inaccurate. Do you mind if I offer some gratuitous advice? Sure. Stop trying to educate. Well, educating in the sense of this is here. This is what it does for you. And this is why it will help you. Not so much the other stuff. We learned the hard way that selling the tech as the tech and saying, oh, this is how it works. Nobody wants to know how it works. Nobody. Nobody. It could be a monkey running on a, a treadmill in a basement, uh, powering a light bulb. And if it gave, if it made companies a return on investment, they, they don't need, they, they wouldn't give a shit. It's like, great. No, it works. Fantastic. Well, the rule is sell today, educate tomorrow. So obviously you've got the analytics yourself and you're applying that in the context of the ideal customer and making sure that you've got the right people having the right conversations. The other element of this that's really critical is to start with the right intent. And I'm sure you are from the values that you've been expressing. And the first thing is that, can we help? If we can help, are we the right people to help? And are they willing to be helped? Because there's little or no point trying to help someone who doesn't want to be. You can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. Well, funnily enough, you can if you put salt in the oats. (laughs) I like um, it. And the key is how do you put salt in the oats? Because a lot of people under pressure will revert back to what they learned first. Our natural instinct as human beings is to look for what feels familiar. And unless we can find a way to make it feel familiar, because what the way you describe it, it's revolutionary. And our nature is not to embrace change unless we see the immediate value to ourselves. However, if it sounds too good to be true, then chances are uh, what we'll be doing is running a bunch of filters and paradigms uh, that tell us this can't be possible. Paradigms Uh, it is. So I, I suspect you face two major obstacles. One is your youth. Because a lot of uh, fusty old buggers like me uh, will look at you and think, well, what the hell does he know about life, the universe, and everything? Now, you're one of the most eloquent and uh, lucid people that I've ever met. So it's a genuine delight to meet you. And uh, you're to be applauded for the brilliance of what your vision is, as well as the evolution. But I think the, the other element is that when people are facing something that means that they have to let go of what feels familiar. 
they naturally get uncomfortable and they build resistance and they find excuses. What are you doing in terms of preempting those objections and raising them yourself? Yeah, uh, I like how you said a familiar thing. I mean, one thing is the design of our website. Uh, we, we have a lot of like 8-bit so it's familiar. Everybody knows Atari games. Everybody used to play them. Everybody in their, uh, their, their 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, even, 70s even, uh, if you were that type of a person. But it's familiar to everybody. And it's nostalgic. And adding language to what we do where we, for example, our homepage. That's pretty risky when it comes to business, if you really think about it. We are trying to state everything that everybody is thinking but they're afraid to say it because you can't say that in business. Well, of course you can. Business is just people doing stuff to, 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 to meet an objective. It, like why, I don't know, the, it's, the, it's the whole baby boomer era of like, you know, hefty corporate whatever is what really started that whole like, oh, super professional attitude at work. And I mean, everybody's uptight and fake at that point. Nobody can show their, their true personality and then everybody's miserable. So it's bringing the playfulness and delight and wonder back to working because working with purpose for reasons that you believe in is more powerful than working for a paycheck. The paycheck will come if you're doing what you love and you do it well, but that has to do with how happy you are in your workplace and happy workers are more effective. So trying to reflect that type of a feel of a, of, um, uh, of an experience while interacting with us and our product and our everything, that's what we're trying to go for is the nostalgic back to the basics, but it's a revolutionary product. So you're going back to the basics and back to uh, the, the, the natural order of how humans want to interact by putting the people back into the process, but with a revolutionary product and a technology that they're very unfamiliar with. So it kind of adds both sides of the spectrum and we keep trying to develop that better on how to, how to make that happen. I recently interviewed a fabulous guest Michael Puck, who is a chief human capital management advisor to a company called Kronos. And the research that he was quoting suggests that there is a 430% higher profit per employee, uh, a 290% higher revenue per employee, a 40% lower churn rate, and 20% higher productivity from highly engaged employees. And if you think about the difficulty, the pressure that salespeople are facing, so much talk. In fact, I've just been invited to my second podcast in a week to talk about mental health within the sales arena. Um, if you can provide them with qualified quality opportunities to speak to the right people who have a high probability of buying from you, you will have highly engaged salespeople. And salespeople are the lifeblood of every business. If the salespeople don't sell... I say that word for word every day. Well, so if salespeople don't sell, people don't have a roof over their head. They can't put food on the table. And the problem is that as a profession, I think we are desperately wanting because most salespeople are little better than order takers. If they're really atrocious, they go into the realms of uh, the negative side of negotiating, which is giving stuff away to try and buy the business. If you're speaking to the right people who are a suitable match for what you do, 
you never have to worry about having an empty pipeline, which means that you then don't have to do fireside sales to try and buy the business and give away your margin, which means you get to keep more profit so you can invest in your own growth and you can hire the best people and you can get the best and the right technology. Right. And I would agree with that too. And it goes down to the people level too, where it's not just, oh, they're qualified for your company to sell to. It's why do people buy insurance? Let's say New York Life over Mutual of Omaha or Colonial or whatever, right? Why do people choose New York Life over the others? Can you tell? Like, what's the difference? Or not, the it's the relationship or the experience. Right. It's the experience they had with the individual. And that is ultimately why. Why does someone switch insurance? They offer the exact same thing, except for maybe one tiny thing in the fine print that only matters logistically, right? That, well, that's it, the difference. In the conversation I had with uh, Amy Brown at Authentics, the number one reason that people moved was frustration. It was frustration with the website. Then they got on to speak to a customer service rep uh, or a salesperson. Uh, in one case, 40% of their highly trained licensed salespeople were being taken up uh, with um, customer support issues around the website. Um, they went down from 40 to 8% in two months uh, simply by having uh, using the customer information because customers will teach you how to sell to them. They're your best teachers. And feeding that into the UI UX people so they reworked uh, their website to eliminate those problems. And right. if you are not listening to your customers, and that's another area where I'd be really curious to see where you go. If you're not listening to your customers, then you are missing out on a wealth of small data. And it's the little data that really matters. It's the, the individual nuance and looking for those patterns across millions, billions, or trillions data points and touch points. Right. I mean, for example, one person said, well, oh, I want this list to have like, you know, you know, like the on and off, like darker shade to like white to darker shade to white, like an Excel doc has, you could set it up like that. He said, well, I prefer that. I personally don't prefer, but no platform offers you a toggle and we didn't have it that way. So by default, it adds the pattern and then you press button and it takes it away. That little toggle, people are going to love it just because of that tiny little stupid change that one person said, Hey, I wanted to do this because I like that that listening to that. I come from a UX UI background. So that we are a design first company and an experience first company. And that dictates what we do is based off of what the people want. It is about what the people want. If you're not doing what they want, you're building something that you want, which is not what everybody else wants. It's about what everyone wants as a bulk, as the major demographic, as the major persona. It's not about what you want or what you think. It's not a dictatorship. It is very much socialist business good business is socialist if you're offering a product because it's about what the people want and it's in essence of what the company's leaders can do with that one i'm going uh, to connect you with a pal of mine martin lucas who runs a company called gap in the matrix and they work in the business to business to consumer market so working with consumer products but helping these companies to improve what they're doing in terms of their marketing and their selling and by tweaking seven words, they were able to add over $60 million in sales by refocusing the message on what the customers actually wanted, human beings wanted. Another example, the uh, CMO of this global brand had it in his head 
that what he wanted the brand to uh, represent was an adventure brand. So all of their marketing and advertising was people base jumping and uh, you know surfing and all this kind of stuff. But one of the biggest markets was China and Hong Kong. And uh, people put in Hong Kong and China perceive their brand as something to be seen in when they go out in the evening for social uh, uh, acceptance, um, at, you know, when they go out to restaurants. And by doing that, in one quarter, they increase sales by 62 million. Absolutely. And that's the difference. Like in the US, everybody wants to be different. Everybody wants to be an individual and unique. In China, everybody wants to fit in with one another. So the branding behind Coca-Cola in China, for example, is that it's this special, high-quality thing that you do to fit in with other people who are also at that same social level. That's how they achieve that. In the U.S., the way that they, uh, the way that they advertise Coca-Cola is on the complete opposite spectrum. It's dare to be different. It's about like, oh, share a Coke with a whoever. Or, you know, it, the way that they approach it, they don't have that in China. In China, it's all about being one in unison and fitting in and all that. And then it's, it's it, that brand schema based on region is crazy important. That kind of maybe think of one, of one of the things that we want destroyed too, that you'll like this, Marcus, is that why, why the hell do sales teams have regions? Why is there territory? Someone who's in Houston does not necessarily have to sell to people in Houston. Why would they do that? If they're better at selling to people in Miami, why aren't they selling to people in Miami and in, in, the, and in the Netherlands? Because that's where they're, they're good at it. What, what's, what does a territory have to do with anything? I, I agree. I, I have this issue myself at, at this exact moment, but I, I'm not going to go into that because we're due to wrap up. But I'm just thinking in terms of how we can apply what you do in an international arena, being able to then rapidly expand. Because I think to address your issue, uh, the, your question, I think part of the challenge that we've got in the COVID era is that no one in their right mind is going to go into a metal tube and risk two weeks of quarantine either end or possibly four to six weeks of severe illness to go and meet a prospect. Now, if we're looking at how you're targeting your ideal customers, then it may well be that it makes a lot more sense to have your international expansion driven by very, very personalized, very targeted sales activity coupled with really targeted and personalized marketing activity, especially in the middle of the funnel. Because if you have that insight, the one area that I see appallingly managed is the middle of the funnel. Because most people focus on the front end of the funnel. And as soon as it goes into the CRM, they then focus on close date and they miss out that middle bit which is why you end up with all this deal slippage. You end up with this bulging, constipated pipeline. And I'm really excited to, uh, to see how you're going to be uh, working with your clients. Uh, Cut to out the fat, baby. That's it. <laughs> Cut to, out the fat. 90% of it's garbage anyway. Why even look at it? Don't waste your time. Absolutely. Excellent. Rob, how can people get hold of you? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, you can go to our website. It's uh, whiterabbitintel.com. That's rabbit with two Bs. You have no idea how many people make that mistake. <laughs> <laughs> which is crazy, but, uh, or, uh, yeah, yeah. You can get in touch with me personally on either LinkedIn or rob.turley at whiterabbitintel.com. And, uh, if I'm not available, then I can have one of the experts at our company get in touch with you too. So any way you'd like. Excellent. Rob Telly, thank you so much. Cheers. I appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. It was a lot of fun.
My pleasure. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this conversation stimulating, then please like, comment, share, and subscribe. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch with me, contact me at marcuskauke at me.com or via LinkedIn. And if you think you'd be a good guest or you know someone who'd be a good guest, then please contact me as well and perhaps put us in touch and connect us on LinkedIn. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.